Um, my name is Brady. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mosaic. I'm the campus pastor uh, at our campus for Walt Disney World cast members. Uh, but it's really, yeah, yes, yes, hooray for, for me. Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, uh, but I, I'm really glad to be here. I, I love Mosaic. Uh, it's, it's a fun church that I get to be a part of. Uh, the, as, as I was thinking about the message this week, I was reminded of when I, when I went to college. And when I went to college, uh, at the college I was a part of, fraternities and sororities were a big deal. Greek life at my college was a big deal. And most people, they, they did that. They, they went into a, a sorority or fraternity. And, and, I, and I totally get why, because your entire life um, has really been building up to your senior year of high school. You know, where you've really gathered an identity, you've gathered a group of friends, you've, you've, you've made a reputation for yourself, you, are, you know who you are, and then all of a sudden you walk onto this brand new campus full of thousands of brand new people, and you're a tiny little fish in a gigantic pond, and you know, you, it's, it's all brand new, and your identity, all that work that you put into that, it's kind of washed away, uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of nice to have a group of people that you can kind of get in with and, and have almost a, a family. Uh, you know, fraternity actually means brotherhood. So I understand why people uh, do that. It makes a lot of sense. But the difficult thing is actually for the fraternity or the sorority because they've worked really hard over the years to build up their reputation. Uh, where I went to college, I was able to tell from a distance, whether you were in a fraternity or a sorority or not. Just because of the, the, the way that you dressed, because of the way that you interacted, be, be, the way that you walked. It, it, it was different. Uh, not, not in a bad way, but they, they conformed themselves to an image. They wanted to be alike. Now, not exactly like they had individuals, but there were a lot of things that they did. The way that they greeted one another, the way they shook hands. Uh, my, my buddy, uh, he was a Fiji, and he, every time he bought a piece of pie, he was supposed to cut off off the top of it into a triangle, it was called deltaing the pie. I, I don't know, but, but that's what they did. And, and, and it's kind of neat that, that anywhere you go, if you meet someone from a fraternity that was actually from a different city, different college, you have some things in common. So, so you've got this reputation that you've built up, and now you have uh, 20, 30, 40 brand new guys or girls that have came from different backgrounds, uh, different families, different ways of speaking, different ways of dressing, different ways of talking, and now you want to conform them to your image. You want them to be like the rest of the people in the fraternity or the sorority. Uh, you've worked hard at this, and so they go through this process called pledgeship. And during pledgeship, they kind of break you down physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, maybe spiritually, so that they can build you back up again in the way that they want you to be. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing. Could you imagine if, if a freshman pledge, you know, said to his pledge master at, at one time or another, you know what, I, I, like, I like the fraternity and all, but I don't, I'd really rather not do things this way. Can we, can we change the way things are done? Can you imagine the pledge master saying, oh, that's, that's a great point you bring up. Yeah, yeah, you know what, we'll do, we're just going to cater it to your needs. Anyone, anyone else have any other preferences that we could kind of change? And, and I mean, you know, really up for suggestions. Could you imagine that happening? Say no. The answer is no. It's the one time the answer isn't Jesus. Yeah. No, no, you, you, no, no, that would never happen. That would never happen because they've done things for years and years and years and years for a reason, for a purpose. And I think, as I, as, as I think about the church, 
We're going to be talking about the church today. There are a lot of similarities between a fraternity and a sorority and the church and the way that they do things and the way that we do things. Not exactly, but there are a lot of similarities. But I think what happens, and I'll use me for an example so we don't offend a lot of people. Um, when I was in college, for instance, uh, I, I, I crammed four years into four and a half years. And, and over four and a half years, I didn't, I never found a home church. Ne- never, right? I did what we called church shopping, right? And I, I would, I mean, I don't know, I'd faithfully go for a couple weeks in a row, but there was always something that I didn't like. You know, the, the preaching wasn't cr- quite where I wanted it to be. The preaching style wasn't the style that I enjoyed. It wasn't convicting enough. It was too convicting. Uh, the, 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 the worship band, you know, they, they weren't the style that I liked. They sang too many hymns. Or they didn't sing enough hymns. It was too traditional or it was uh, too non-traditional. Uh, the congregation was too old or they're too young. I mean, there's always something that I didn't like, something that didn't really uh, meet my personal preferences. And so I kept hopping from church to church to try to find one that it was exactly the way that I wanted it to be. You see, when I walked into the doors of a church, I was thinking, how can they serve me? How can they bless me? How can they take care of my needs? How can they take care of my wants and my desires? How can they enhance my life? That was my perspective. And I know you, there's no one in here that can relate to that, but just try to imagine, try to imagine for a second that that's the way that you've walked into a church. Um, Here's the thing. The question is, well, does it matter? I mean, that, that's kind of the way that we do it in, in American Christianity. Um, it's, it's kind of the way that we do it. We, we, we church shop, and when we don't like the church, you know, after a while, the pastor says something, or they make a stand, or something changes. You get a brand new worship leader, you know, you know call him Zach. Uh, uh, you know, you get a brand new executive pastor, and, and, and it changes. Things change, and you don't like it anymore. We don't like change, and so we're like, eh, I think I'm out. Does it matter that we, that we do it this way or not? Because here's the thing. We're called the family of whom? God or Jesus. I would have accepted Jesus too, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're his family. Right? We no longer just represent ourselves. We represent God. We're the family of God, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the spirit of the God of the universe. So it matters. It matters. Now, we're going to be in the book of of 1 Corinthians. We're we're still in the story of Acts, but at this time in in the book of Acts, Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth. And what the entire first letter is about is how do we actually live like the church? What does that look like? What does it look like in a ton of different areas? And so I'm really excited that we get to be in this. Uh, If... if, uh, if you grab one of the beautiful blues, it'll be on page 618, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 618. If you don't have one, just 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, Corinth was an interesting city. It had a unique history. Uh, for instance, in 146 BC, they were doing some things that the Roman Empire was not excited about, and so they completely decimated and destroyed the city. I mean, they flattened the city completely. It was no longer a city anymore. Uh, and so for a hundred years, almost uh, about a century went by, and there was no city of Corinth. 
And then in 44 BC, Julius Caesar came in and decided, hey, this is a very strategic location. This is an important place. We should have a city here. So he began to repopulate and rebuild Corinth for his purposes. And he, you know, he used you know, his ex-soldiers and he used freedmen and a number of different people to begin to populate this city. Okay, so now you have this city, and what happened is 90 years later, which is about the time that Paul came to Corinth, uh, 90 years, about the lifetime of a person, this city became a city of 700,000 people. In 90 years, it went from zero to 700,000 people. Now, today, that's not as big a deal, but it went from the smallest city, which was no city, to the third biggest city in the Roman Empire in 90 years. And it did this for a number of different reasons. One reason is because it had a very strategic location. It was located on an isthmus, okay? I just learned how to say that word, isthmus. Any, anyone know, know what an isthmus is? Okay, don't make fun of me because I can't say it. It's a, what it is, it's a, it's a small piece of land that separates two larger bodies of water that connects two other pieces of land. How cool is that? It, it has a very important job. And its job is to turn an island into a peninsula, right? If it wasn't there, then Greece would be an island, not a peninsula. So it really has a really important role. And, and, and what happens, at least in this particular case with this isthmus, is it, it connected uh, the, the trade routes of Italy with the trade routes of the east, or actually from where you're looking, Italy to the east, okay? And, and, and that was very important because there was a ton of stuff going on in the east, and Italy, uh, you know, Rome was the, the capital, and so a lot of trade flowed through there. And what happened is you had Greece in the way. And if you went around the peninsula of Greece, it was a very long journey. It was a very dangerous journey. You know, ships didn't always make it through. You had to dump your cargo a lot of times. So it was very expensive, very costly to the merchants. So what happened was instead, they would go into this isthmus and they would travel over. It was about 3.67 miles give or take a point or two, um, long. And so they would travel to one side, uh, uh, Corinth, and Corinth actually had both harbors. They would go to one side of the harbor, they would unload their cargo, uh, take it you know, a few miles down the road and unload it onto a different ship. Or they would take their entire ship out of the water, put it on rollers, and roll it across the isthmus. And so this actually saved the merchants loads of money. So Corinth was a giant center for merchant trade business, it became really the land of opportunity because it was a brand new city and yet there was loads of opportunity for people to make money. Uh, the merchants, they could make money and then people could make money off the merchants. They needed places to stay. They needed uh, entertainment. They needed a lot of different things. There was you know, you know, you know, taxes and tariffs and all those kind of things that went on. So there was a lot of money to be made in this city of Corinth and so it exploded it, it, it was such a, an important city that they began to um, host the Ismithian Games. And I know we're all familiar with the Ismithian Games, right? Well, back in the day, they were about on the level with the Olympics. The Olympics are pretty important, 
right? And so these were these games where athletes came from all over to gain great honor. Winners of these games became almost immortalized. They became famous. Uh, they would get uh, you know, benefits from the state for their children, tax benefits, all kind of great things. Uh, they were a household name. This was a big deal. So athletes from all over the world would come to these games to get fame, glory, immortality. And then tourists from all over the world would come in to watch these games, watch these athletes compete. Now, religion was a very important piece of Corinth. Uh, they, they had the worship of uh, Aphrodite. There was this giant temple on this gigantic mountain uh, just uh, overlooking the city to Aphrodite. And what they boasted was, because Aphrodite was the goddess of, of, of sex and beauty uh, and, and love, is that they boasted that there were a thousand temple prostitutes to the worship of Aphrodite. Now, we can't prove whether that many or not, but that was their boast. So this was obviously a big deal. They also worshiped Apollos, who was the god of the sun, and they worshiped Poseidon, who was the god of the sea and of horses. And they dedicated the Ismithian games to Poseidon. Uh, there, there were a lot of different... Um, uh, events that you could uh, compete in, but, but equestrian was a big one. Uh, you could uh, do all, most of the Roman games. And then uh, an interesting one that I thought was you could compete in the athletic event of music. Yeah, which I've never considered an athletic event before, but now my horizons have been open. So back in the day, you could comp compete in these games, Olympic-like games, in music. Uh, and so that's kind of the way that this city was. It had a lot of tourists. It had a lot of big business. It was located in this unique spot. It had grown really quickly. And so the people of Corinth had a unique identity. Uh, the first thing was that they were, they were individuals. They saw themselves as individuals who were striving to be self-sufficient. Um, and they would do this by the, uh, the means of business and, and, and cutthroat business practices so they could gain wealth. Because the only way, one of the very few ways that you could up your status in that day and age was by gaining wealth. And so there was this hope in the land of opportunity that you could now gain great amounts of wealth and you could up your status. Um, they were very... Uh, for self-promotion. They're all about self-promoting themselves because if you could promote yourself, you could promote your business. Uh, they had traveling uh, teachers and philosophers that would come in and when they would promote themselves, people loved it. They loved it in Corinth. It was, it was a unique city. Um, this was a city that was guided by pleasure. Uh, the word Corinthian actually came to mean wasteful, extravagant, and licentious. It was a euphemism for wasteful, extravagant, and licentious. A Corinthian, that's what it meant, which, that's crazy. Now, if you turn it into a verb to Corinthian eyes, it meant to have sex with prostitutes. So this is how decadent this city was. This is how this city lived. This is, you know, the, the vast, you know, sexual immorality that was going on in this society that, that, that everyone in the world began to know them as these type of, of people, and they were fully engaged in the worship of idols. Um, you know, on, on the slide, uh, the Corinthian slide, we have, we have a, a city. Any, anyone know what, what city that is? Las Vegas, yeah. Um, I don't know how you know that. You must have been there. Um, <laughs> does everything you did say there? I've always wondered. 
Does it, does it not? I don't know. Maybe it's in the picture. Uh, but, but, but the reason that we have this is because Corinth was kind of like the Vegas of the ancient world. You know, it was a city that was all about self-indulgence, you know, sexual immorality, all kind of stuff going on. That's what Corinth was like. And so Paul decides, he, he's in Athens, and things in Athens aren't going really well, so he leaves Athens and he decides to go to Corinth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would have chosen to go to Corinth. It doesn't sound like a great place to plant a church. It sounds like a terrible fight that you're going to be in for forever. But he chose this for, for some very strategic reasons. First of all, a lot of people came into Corinth, they stayed there for a time, and then they left. And so Paul saw this as missionary training school. If I could plant a church, a great church, a solid church that could train up and raise up leaders, they would then go to their own countries and they would become missionaries for the gospel and it would be a very strategic gospel location. Secondly, there was a big population of Jewish people there. And you know that Paul, as we've seen in his journeys in, uh, in Acts, is that he always wants to go to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles. And so there was a great population of Jewish people there for Paul to teach the gospel to. And, and this last one I thought was really cool, very practical, is that uh, the, the Smithian Games and all the other things that, that you know, brought in so many different tourists, um, it just so happened that there wasn't enough places for people to stay. So there were thousands of people that needed places to stay, so they would stay in tents. And you know what? Anyone know what Paul did for a living? He was a tent maker. He, he made tents. And so Paul said to himself, hey, I'm not going to teach the gospel for, for, for glory. I'm not going to teach it uh, for wealth. I don't want anyone to think that I'm teaching to gain wealth. So I'm going to work for a living while I'm teaching. And what I do for a living is I make tents. Where can I do that? It's very practical, very practical. I love that about Paul. And so Paul heads into Corinth and he plants this church and he stays there for a year and a half. Now, for us, staying in a place for a year and a half might not be a big deal. But for Paul, this was a long period of time on his missionary journeys. He didn't stay in any city for near that long up to that point in time. So he spent a year and a half pouring his blood, sweat, and tears, pouring his heart into these people, training them up, raising them up, watching them uh, be in love with the world and then becoming in love with Jesus, being mesmerized by the world and then being mesmerized by Christ, and then turning around and wanting to raise uh, up others and, and point them to Jesus. Could you imagine how Paul felt about these people over the year and a half, how much he cared about them, how much he had poured into them? After a year and a half, he leaves. He goes to Ephesus, then he goes to Antioch, and then he comes back to Ephesus and he stays there for three years. And during that time, he writes the letters of First and Second Corinthians to this church of Corinth. And he writes it for a reason. Uh, if you guys remember Apollos, he, he was hanging out in Ephesus, then he went over and began preaching in Corinth. Well, he preached in Corinth for a while, and then he came back to Ephesus, and Paul got to know him. Paul had met him up until that time. And then some other people were over there and came, came back and gave reports, and there were letters back and forth. And so Paul knew what was going on in Corinth. And here's what was going on with the church of Corinth. The first thing is there was no unity within the church. There, there, were, there were factions that were being formed. There were people that were saying, dude, I love this Apollos guy. Man, when he preaches, he's so compelling. The way that he tells stories, it is amazing. It's so convicting. I love Apollos, man. I'm only going to follow Apollos. In fact, I'm not even going to listen to this Paul guy anymore. I, I, I mean, he was, he worked for a living. He didn't even get paid to preach, right? He was not as eloquent as Apollos. I love Apollos. I'm all about Apollos. And some guys were like, no way. I'm about Paul. Paul planted this church. 
right? I was baptized by Paul. Paul is the man. I don't know who this Apollos joker is, but I'm going to be about Paul. And other people were like, no, I'm about Peter. Peter was a disciple of Jesus for three years. He walked with Jesus for three years. Paul only ever saw him when he knocked him off the donkey and made him blind, right? Peter was with Jesus. Jesus renamed him the rock. He's the guy that we should be following. And so divisions began forming. There were divisions over moral issues. There were divisions over uh, doctrinal issues. Uh, there, were se- there was segregation going on. People of higher status were kind of segregating themselves from people from lower status. Uh, they, were, they were segregating based on their spiritual gifts. They were ranking some gifts as better, as more important, as, as more to be desired. And some gifts is like, eh, I don't really know. It's, 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 it's all right. Have you ever taken a, a spiritual gifts test and gotten hospitality and been like, dang it, I wanted, I wanted one of the better ones, right? Because we still do this today. I mean, we look at some and say, these are good ones, and these are like, eh, it's all right. I mean, I'd like this like my, my, my second one, you know, like if, if my first one doesn't work out, maybe I'll have that one as my second one. But but that's not the way that spiritual gifts work. But they were segregating and separating based on these kinds of of things. Uh, there, were, there were lawsuits going on within the church. People within the church were suing one another, and the name of Jesus was being defamed among them. Uh, they were tolerating and even celebrating great sexual immorality. In fact, they had become prideful about how tolerant they were of sexual immorality in, in their church. Uh, there was no understanding of or submission to authority. They were completely rejecting the authority that God had placed in their lives through Paul, through the elders, through the deacons. Uh, there, there was disorder and disarray, all kinds of dysfunction going on within the gatherings, right? People weren't sitting there nice and quietly, like you guys, and then, you know, laughing at the jokes when they're supposed to. And they were interjecting and arguing and being disruptive, and it was confusing, and, and no one knew what was going on. So can you imagine Paul hearing these things, that these people that he had poured his life into, that he cared so deeply about, had become, begun rejecting him and looking down upon him. They'd be, they began rejecting Jesus. They were so individualistic. There was no unity within the body. They were, they were making the name of Jesus look terrible. So Paul hears this news and he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians and it starts like this. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I wasn't elected an apostle. I didn't strive to be an apostle. I was called by God to be an apostle, to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sosthenes, it's possible that this was the guy who was the leader of the synagogue that back in Acts we saw in, in Corinth that he got, he got beaten instead of Paul. Um, it, it, we, we don't know exactly, but it might have been this guy. Uh, and Paul is with him right now. And so, so Paul and Sosthenes, we're, we're writing this together. Verse 2, it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth. Not to an individual, not to a person, not to a division of or a faction of, but to the church the united, undivided church in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Not the word that I would choose to use with a group of people 
that were defaming the name of Jesus with the way that they lived, with the way they acted and interacted, the way they're dividing the church, rejecting Paul. I mean, there was so much sin going on within the church, and Paul says, I'm writing to those that are sanctified, past tense, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You're not on your own. It's not all about you. It's about the church, the global bride of Christ. You're not on your own on an island. You are a part of something bigger, a part of a family, a community that is bigger than you. To the church, those sanctified, those called to be saints, together with all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace to you who have rejected me, to you who are tolerating sin, to you who are celebrating sin, to you that are, that are defunct, dysfunctional and causing dysfunction, disorder, and disunity within the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you. I give thanks for you. Whenever I think about you always, I give thanks to God for you, you who have rejected me, you who are making the name of Jesus defamed among people. I give thanks for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. It was confirmed. It wasn't fake. It was confirmed. The church, saints, sanctified, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Even when we are not, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful among whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If there's one name that sticks out to you about those first nine verses, what is it? It's the correct answer always. Jesus. Paul says the name Jesus, or writes the name Jesus, eight times in the first nine verses. He refers to him ten times. He uses Christ without Jesus once, and he uses him when referring to Jesus one time. Ten times in the first nine verses, Paul talks about Jesus. Six times he talks about God, probably referring to the Father. Who is this about? Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about your individualism. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your sin. It's not about the ways that you've fallen, the ways that you've failed. It's about Jesus. Paul, I can't imagine what he's feeling. I can imagine what he's thinking, but he writes this letter and he starts it like this. 
you who are sanctified, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. We weren't created for it to be about us. We were created for it to be about Jesus, and we find our fulfillment and our satisfaction in having our lives be about Jesus. It's not about our individual preferences. It's not solely or mainly about your personalized relationship with Jesus. Although it's important to have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's not what it's mainly about. We're not saved into a vacuum. We're not saved into this world of aloneness where I'm this, this, this rock and, and, and I don't need anyone else. We're saved into a community into a family, into a kingdom, together with all of those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're a body. We're the bride of Christ. The church is an amazing thing. It really is a beautiful thing. We're called the kingdom of God. We're called the temple of the spirit of the God of the universe. Where does God dwell? He always dwelt in temples in the, or in the temple in the Old Testament. What's, what's his temple now? Us. Right, where two or three are gathered, there I am in your name. He's talking about the church. God dwells among us. This is the church. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. How much do you think Christ cares about his bride? Beyond the fact that he died for us, you know, you can talk bad about me, and, and I'll be a little offended. I'll get over it, and I'll forgive you. You talk bad about my, about my wife, and I'm going to pay some larger dude to take care of that, right? <laughs> I, here's the thing. I, honestly, though, it's hard for me to forgive people when they're unkind to my wife. I'm very protective of that. Can you imagine how much God cares about his bride? his church. This is what the church is. This is what we are called into. This is what we are saved into. This is what we are invited into, to this amazing thing called the church. And the church has an amazing calling. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the tangible presence of God in this world to go out and to bring in people to share with them the love of Jesus, to share with them the good news that God doesn't hate them, that he wants them in his kingdom, that he died for them. We are the hands and feet of Christ. Where's the tangible presence of God in this world? Among us. Among us. How cool is this? And what, what blows my mind is this, that, that this amazing thing with this amazing calling it's made up of people like me. People like you. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we're not the most popular. We're not the most powerful. We're not the most wealthy. We're not the best looking. We're not the, you know, we're not the wisest or the smartest people in the world. If the world was to get together and say, hey, I want a group of people to be the people of God, we're going to choose them a little bit differently. But that's not what God did. He chose me. Even me. He chose you to be a part of his family, to represent him, to be his 
bride. And when we make church about us, when we walk in these doors and we say, how can this place serve me? How can this place bless me? How can this place take care of me? Does this place fit my personal preferences? We defame the name of Jesus. And that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. But the good news of this first portion of 1 Corinthians is this. If that applies to you, like it has applied to me so often, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I had a rough week. Yesterday I had to make three different apologies to people. It was only two separate events, so it wasn't that bad, but, <laughs> but it was, I mean, I, I felt pre- pretty, pretty bad about the way that I, I represented God. And what does he say to me? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Have, have you been tolerating or celebrating sexual immorality? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been causing divisions among the church body of Christ? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been living in sin? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been, have you been coming to the Lord's Supper in an unholy manner? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care who you are or, or where you've been been grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the place for you. You are welcome here. You are invited into the family of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not the end of the message. Paul has more to say and we're going to get into it and I love it, but it is the beginning. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've struggled with, grace to you and peace. God desires peace with you. He desires you to be a part of his family. He desires you to be a part of his bride, the one he loves so deeply that he died for you. The church is a very amazing entity that we get the opportunity to be a part of together. The rest of of Corinthians talks about how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we deal with this or that? It's going to be a great journey as we venture into this letter. It's going to be an exciting journey as we venture into this letter over the next few weeks. I'm excited for us. I'm excited about the way that that God loves us and the way that he invites us into his family and what that actually means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need you. Lord, we need you. God, without you, Lord, without you, wow. It's only about me. I pray that you'd forgive us for making your church about us individually, and our preferences and our desires. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to be about you, that you would fix our eyes back on your son, the solution, the the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
Lord, I pray that our church body would be about Jesus. That when people look in, that they would see Jesus. They would feel the tangible presence of Jesus in this world. God, we need you. Show us what it means to be your church, to be your temple. Show us what that looks like. God, show us how to engage the world as the church for the world. We need you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your forgiveness and your love. Thank you that we and you are sanctified, forgiven, and free. I pray you'd fill us to the fullness with your spirit so we could go out and live wholeheartedly for you and represent you well. We ask these things and cry out to you in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.